This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. What is freedom? How can we talk about free will in the multiverse, a universe with infinite copies of ourselves? At its core, freedom means being able to make a personal, conscious decision about your own behavior. Freedom means choosing your own path out of poverty. Human imagination is our greatest freedom. For indigenous people, freedom is self-determination. It originally meant the power to rule, and in a democracy, the power to rule and be ruled as an equal. With our colleagues across the campus, the Division of Arts and Humanities at the University of California, San Diego, presents Degrees of Freedom. An extraordinary public lecture series featuring six unique perspectives on what it means to be free. It's a great pleasure to introduce to you tonight Professor Paul Niehaus. He's assistant professor of economics here at UCSD. He joined us in 2009. That was at the end of a nine-year stint in Cambridge. He got two degrees from Harvard, his undergraduate degree and his PhD in 2009. With my less-than-limited knowledge of economics, I think think I feel safe in saying that Professor Niehaus has devoted his academic work, at least in recent years, to the behavioral side of economics and also specifically in connection with the problem of poverty. As I look through the titles of some of his journal articles, though I can't pretend to be able to explain them, I gather that the emphasis on developing countries, on donor uh, behavior, on corruption, places him squarely in the ranks of those who have devoted their energies to studying the lives of the poor. His other activities related to his academic activities show him in this uh, realm of, um, of activity as well. He's an affiliate of the Jamil Poverty Action Lab. That's a global research organization that addresses policy issues in the fight against poverty. And he is the founder and president of another organization, but I'm guessing that's a main subject of what he'll be talking to tonight, so I'll let him explain that to you. Please join me in welcoming to the podium Professor Paul Niehaus. Thanks so much, uh, Stephen. Thank you all. It's great to be here. I, uh, I think the, uh, the intro makes it all sound so glamorous. The reality is that uh, typically at this time of night, I'm at home with a two-year-old in one arm and the frying pan in the other trying to uh, cobble together something for dinner. So this is a fun change and, uh, and exciting <laughs> to be here. Um, topic for today, as you may have guessed, is, uh, is going to be uh, the work uh, to, uh, to fight international poverty and extreme poverty. Um, I, uh, I think when you look at the problems facing our planet and the things that you could commit 
um, your life to, uh, to do to try to improve the world we live in. There's an enormous range of things that you could do, but sort of two that have always stood out to me, one being um, climate change and the other being global poverty. Um, and so for the last 10 years, I've been working um, through different channels um, to try to, uh, to do what I could to bring it down. Um, and I should say up front um, that while I'm going to tell you in a moment about how bad it is, I also think that uh, we're right now at a moment with enormous potential. And in fact, there's an active debate at the moment about whether we could, by 2030, in just 15 years from now, um, effectively eliminate extreme poverty, meaning people living on less than $1.25 per day uh, from our planet. We've never been having that debate before, so it's a really exciting moment. Um, and I'm an optimist. But at the same time, we shouldn't be, uh, be clear that we live um, in a moment right now when extreme poverty is still a large and pressing problem with roughly one billion people living on less than that $1.25 figure globally. Um, and $1.25 per day is really nothing. Right? Keep in mind that that figure has already been adjusted for differences in international price levels. So it literally means to live on $1.25 a day. It literally means to be able to live on what you or I could purchase if we were to take $1.25 out onto the streets of San Diego. You're not going to be able to send your kids to any kind of reasonable schooling. You won't be able to provide even the most rudimentary health care for a family member if they fall ill. You'll be making choices like which kid goes to bed hungry tonight. Um, It's grinding. It's psychologically devastating. It's very bad. Of course, this uh, series is about freedom. So I wanted to start by uh, talking a little bit about the relationship between the concept of freedom and the concept of poverty. It turns out that this has been an active area of discussion and thoughtful deliberation for quite a long time. Um, And I can't synthesize or distill all of that for you and do it justice, but I'd say that for the purposes of tonight's talk, there are three core perspectives that you should understand. Uh, The first, which I'd say is the uh, the most lukewarm on freedom, says that uh, freedom and the absence of poverty, um, if you will, are both important goals, but that at times freedom um, must take a second seat if we are to, uh, to develop and to reduce poverty, right? That we have to make tough choices and trade off between the two of these things at times. Uh, so I think a good example of that perspective would be people who look at the growth experience of uh, countries like the Asian tigers, Taiwan or Korea or Singapore, and say that the reason these countries were able to make rapid progress, develop their economies, and reduce poverty was because the government became very actively involved in regulating and restricting what people could or could not do. There's then a second perspective um, which says, no, the relationship between the two is, if anything, the other way around. They're both good things, and moreover, freedom is very important to ensuring that we make progress out of poverty. And, you know, the best example of that is the enormous shift in the way we've thought about development um, you know, in the last hundred years um, as the uh, sort of communist model fell into disrepute, right? There was a time when everybody thought it was obvious that central planning was going to confer enormous economic advantages, and now, with the benefit of hindsight, we all think that centrally planned economies were a really stupid idea, and of course, you know, who would ever do that? Um, so there's been a huge shift in that direction, right? But there's also a third perspective, and uh, Amartya Sen, whose picture I put up here, who's a uh, Nobel Prize-winning philosopher and economist, is sort of the leading proponent of this view, um, which says that neither of these views quite get it right um, because they dichotomize freedom and poverty in a way that isn't constructive. And Sen's essential point is that when we think about development, if you really sit down and think about what it means to not be poor, it's having opportunities and capabilities, broadly defined. And so his book is actually called Development as Freedom, 
He says that the word freedom, when you think about what it means, is actually a pretty good descriptor of what, what it means to develop. And those freedoms could be political. It could be the freedom to vote for a candidate that you prefer. Um, it could be the freedom to express your opinion on an issue of public concern. Um, they could also be economic freedoms, right? the ability to send your child to a school that you like or to live in a home and have the possessions that you prefer. Um, but these are all sort of examples of freedoms or of opportunities and capabilities that we'd like to have right? and that we should think holistically of development as encompassing all of those things. Personally, I've always been fairly sympathetic to the Sen view of the world, but I'd say for today's conversation, regardless of which of these views you find sort of best fits um, your own perspective, provided you think that there is value in freedom, that there is some value there that we, should, uh, that, we should, uh, that we should care about, it's remarkable when it comes to charitable giving, to international development, the extent to which our current models are not free. And to show you what I mean by that, I want to just kind of walk through with you the way we typically give aid to the poor. So the prototypical problem is you have a donor here on the left side of the screen. That's one of us, privileged to live in the United States in San Diego. And then on the right hand of the screen, you have this recipient, you know, someone living in South Asia or in Africa that we're trying to help. And so the fundamental question is, how do we go about doing this? What kind of systems and institutions do we put in place? And the way things typically work right now is that the donor will give to an international NGO, country uh, sort of headquarters here in the US, but with offices and affiliates throughout the world. They have a, a management structure. They're going to spend some money fundraising. And then they're going to work with local partners on the ground, local NGOs in the various countries where they work, to implement programs. Those local NGOs will have their own staff, their own administrative structure. And then working in conjunction with the international NGO, they're going to make decisions about what goods and services to provide to the poor. And so I put a cow up here uh, because that's you know, one representative thing and there are all these gift catalogs right, that you can go to online where you can say I want to give someone a cow or I want to give them a chicken or something like that. Um, by the way, I think it would be hilarious to run the thing in, in reverse. You know, like Maybe have someone in Africa choose my 401k for me <laughs> and see how many people would sign up for that. The Give Directly gift catalog that I want to build is going to be great. It's going to have a $1 bill, a $20 bill, a $50 bill. Those are the choices. But anyway, this is the system that we've built. This is what things typically look like. And there are reasons why you could argue that you know, it's a good system or that it's the best we could do. So I don't mean to bash it. But I think there are some real, some real clear limitations. Um, one is that it's really opaque. Certainly, if you're a quantitative, kind of evidence-focused guy like me, you go to a typical website and ask, you know, what's going to happen if I put a dollar into this pipe? Um, you're not going to be able to figure it out. Um, that opacity comes with it kind of a real limited sense of how efficient the whole thing is. Right? It's really pretty hard to say kind of what value gets created for the end user for every dollar that we put in at the end of the pipe. We have these metrics that we like to use that come out of kind of the IRS tax reporting that charities do, kind of like overhead and fundraising and stuff like that. They're, um, without getting into too much accounting detail, because I don't want to bore you, um, worse than useless for assessing the performance of the financial efficiency of a, of a model like this. Uh, just to give you some sense, right? when you say program services, right, the percent that's going to the, the good stuff, we think, um, that includes everything. It's basically everything that gets spent in Africa. right? So it could all be staff salaries or vehicles driving around. It includes all the grants to the local NGOs. So who knows, whatever they're doing with it, that all counts as program services in the IRS lexicon. So, so we really just don't know that much. So there are all these issues. 
But I also think there's a much more basic, a much more fundamental issue here, which is that in this model, it's the institutions, the NGOs, that decide what things the recipients of the help get. So in that sense, they're not free to determine how these resources that are meant to benefit them are going to get used. We make those decisions for them. And I think that is the defining characteristic of this system. Because once you question the assumption that we need to give aid in that way, you start to question all the rest of this infrastructure and the way we've built it up. Now, I think there's some potentially some reasons why you might argue that, you know, that it has to be that way. Um, one of them, a basic one, is technology. Right? Sending money directly to people and letting them do whatever they want with it um, is hard and risky. And there are many parts of the world where the technical capacity to do that, um, at least until recently, hasn't been that well developed. So to some extent in the past, we may simply have had no other option from a technical point of view than to build something like this. Um, there is some good news on that front, which is that in the last decade or so, that's been changing dramatically. I'll talk in a bit about uh, the mobile payments revolution in Africa, which has been an important driver of the work we've done at GiveDirectly. Um, I wanted to give you a second example here, which is from work that I've done, uh, impact evaluation work that I've done with a colleague here at UCSD in the econ department, Karthik Morlideran, and a friend of mine from grad school, Sandeep Sukhtankar, who's at Dartmouth. Um, we've done some work that I'm incredibly excited about with the government of India, looking at what happens when you take a massive social protection system. Right? It's a pension scheme and a public employment scheme where people are getting paid basically with paper money and envelopes at the post office. And you take that very insecure, very leaky, very fraud-prone system um, and switch to one where people are authenticating using their fingerprints, right? using biometrics. So when they show up to collect a payment, they're saying, I can prove that I'm Paul because, look, I have Paul's fingerprint, or in some cases, Paul's iris scan. Um, exciting project, very risky. We worked with the government of Andhra Pradesh, which is a state of about 80 million people in India, to randomize the order in which they rolled out this new technology over a crowd, around 20 million people. So one of the largest experimental evaluations, uh, to my knowledge, that's ever been done, um, and found really big impacts on fraud, around a 30%, 35% reduction in the amount of money getting stolen from the program. Um, and somewhat surprisingly, also big improvements in user experience. Metrics like how long it takes people to collect the money, um, how happy they are with the system compared to the old one, um, which to me were a bit counterintuitive because I think you worry with a new technology like this that the tools will break, people's fingerprints won't scan, all the kinds of problems that you might expect. So really exciting progress being made. It's different technology in different parts of the world. It isn't fully saturated yet. But when you look at this, you realize that we can now effectively create bank accounts for some of the poorest people on the planet. And it does raise the question, you know, why not just put money directly into those? But the second reason why you might not do that is because you think, well, you know, poor people aren't, aren't going to use it very well, and we can do better. And that's not a crazy idea. Um, in fact, it's a deeply ingrained idea among aid workers. I want to show you a, a graphic that I found striking, which circulated recently on the internet. This is from a survey. Um, of uh, World Bank staff. So the World Bank is kind of you know, the, the core poverty-fighting institution in the world. Um, and also of individuals living in developing countries. And the way they did this was they asked, uh, they asked people in these emerging markets the question, um, would you agree or disagree that what happens to me in the future mostly depends on me? Right? So we're trying to get at this sense of agency. To what extent do you control your own future? Do you feel in control, or do you feel helpless? Right? So it's kind of an interesting question. Um, and they did this for, focus for now on the right three set of bars. They did this for, uh, for the poorest people, the bottom third of the income distribution. 
um, the middle third and the top third. And these bars tell you that, you know, pretty consistently across those three groups, you know, somewhere between 70 and 80% of people agree with that statement. That they say, what happens to me in the future depends on me. So it's kind of interesting. There's some variation in there, but a fair bit of consistency. Um, then they did something really interesting, which is they went to World Bank staff and said, we're going to be asking these questions. What answers do you predict we're going to get? And they also asked the same question, right, of the World Bank staff. And so the bars that really stand out to me here are these ones here, the predictions, right, for the lowest, for the poorest income households, right? So aid workers predict that only 20% of the poor are going to say that what happens in the future depends on me, right? In other words, aid workers think that the poor feel very disempowered, very disenfranchised. They have no sense of agency. In fact, if you look at the blue bar, the poor feel more empowered than the World Bank. You see that? So you know, this, is, this is just one metric, one kind of way of conceptualizing people's autonomy, their ability to run their own lives. It's, you know, in some ways, it's overly simplistic. But just to give you some sense that when you actually quantify these things, the way we perceive the poor and the way they perceive themselves are actually dramatically different. Right? So these are perceptions. I think at the end of the day, you know, we're researchers here, and what we care about are data. Um, and so the second key thing you need to know that has really changed dramatically in the last 10 years is our understanding of how effective our traditional approaches to fighting poverty are and how effective this much simpler approach of just giving the poor money and letting them use it is at reducing poverty. Um, and it's been an incredibly exciting decade for development economics because of the advent of these experimental tools. Right? So with a clinical trial with a new drug, you know the way we test this and figure out whether it works, right? We split people into a treatment group and a control group, and we measure outcomes at the end of some time period, and we look to see if they're different. And if they're different, we're confident that we're seeing the impact of the treatment because we had random assignment to begin with, right? So that's the way we test, you know, the impact, the efficacy of new medical treatments. Um, kind of obvious, but believe it or not, we had never done this in a systematic way with development work until about 10 years ago. Um, and J-PAL, the institution that Steve mentioned, has really been catalytic, I think, in driving people to do more experimental impact evaluation. Um, and so we just started doing this with a, a whole host of different things that we have been doing for a long time, like giving people stuff, giving people business training, um, changing people's incentives, and giving people money. And of course, the great thing is when you do science, there are a lot of surprises. Right? Things that you thought were obviously true turn out to be false. Um, things you thought were obviously false turn out to be true. And sure enough, with the advent of all these randomized controlled trials, uh, there have been a lot of surprises. I think uh, some things that have worked a lot less well than we intuitively thought they were, um, microfinance has been a bit of a disappointment. I'd say, you know, the jury's still out, and there is some, some evidence of positive things happening, but certainly not the kind of transformative impacts that proponents had, had hoped that we would see. Um, training for micro-entrepreneurs, kind of teaching people how to run businesses and things like that, has really bombed. It turns out we're terrible at that. Um, doesn't mean we couldn't get better. You know, maybe we can, but I think six or seven times now that we've tried evaluating that, different people doing that, hasn't worked. Um, some things that have worked very well around public health, giving people bed nets to reduce the risk that they get infected with malaria, or giving deworming treatments to kids um, so that they're less likely to get sick because of intestinal parasites. Um, and cash transfers have worked surprisingly well across an enormous number of contexts. I put green dots here for all the high-quality studies that we have. And this is actually out of date now, I think, as of a few months ago. Uh, but high-quality studies that we've now done documenting the impacts of literally just giving people money. So the first thing to know is we've done a bunch of these. Um, the second is that a lot of the kind of really nasty negative things that people sometimes worry about 
that might happen have not happened. So in none of these studies have we seen that people systematically increase their drinking or their smoking or their gambling or crime or violence or any of those things. Um, the second is that across all of these, we've seen positive outcomes. But I think, and this is a theme I'll come back to at the end, importantly, um, really different positive outcomes depending on the context. So there are some of these studies where we've seen huge impacts on kids' enrollment and reductions in child labor and no impacts on earnings. There are other studies where we've seen big impacts on earnings and nothing really happening within the household. Right? There are studies where we've seen dramatic reductions in HIV infection because girls are staying in school longer and getting married later when they have enough money to meet their basic living needs. So just incredible diversity right, of impacts. And you should kind of expect that when you think about it, right? Because cash transfers are just about the most flexible thing that you could give someone, and they are going to use them differently, depending on who they are, what their ambitions are, the context in which they live. Right? The third thing I'd say, which is super important, is that we've also seen significant long-term impacts of giving people money once. And to give you a sense of why that's important, we really don't have evidence on the long-term impacts of almost anything. Right? Even with all these randomized controlled trials that we've started to do, um, we have one now that's gone out about 12 years, which is the study of deworming impacts on kids. We have a couple on cash transfers that go out four and five years and showed that after four or five years, people were earning significantly more with rates of return in the sort of 40 to 80% range on the grants they received. Um, the microfinance evaluations, there were a batch of six of them that were just published. Those goes out to about three years. Um, and that's kind of it. The typical impact evaluation might look out one year. So when people talk about, you know, we know what works or what works, just good to keep in mind that we actually know almost nothing about five years after we do something, what are the consequences going to be in development, um, which is sad, and we need to do more. The good news is I think that with, with the spread of mobile phones, we're going to be able to do much better at tracking people and getting more of that long-term evidence in the future. So I think there's going to be that second wave of longer-term RCTs coming, which I'm very excited about. But, uh, so the bottom line here is that with the technology and the data uh, changing, there's been an enormous uptick among development professionals and governments in the emerging markets in the extent to which they use cash transfers. To give you a sense of the numbers, um, the latest estimates I've seen are that there are around 750 to a billion people in the emerging markets who now get some kind of cash transfer from their government. Um, and the estimates I've seen of the total go up to around uh, $400 billion annually. I actually think that's a bit of an overestimate, but it's certainly in the hundreds of billions that individual people in poor countries are getting as cash transfers of some kind. So this is an enormous shift. It's an enormous phenomenon. I think my, someone told me the other day, by the way, that the World Food Program of all people now gives about a third of their budget as cash transfers. So they're well on the way to becoming the World Cash Program. So there's been this pro profound transition in the sort of professional sphere in the way we do international development. Um, but this really hadn't hit the practice of charitable giving. Right? We were still living in this world, right, with the intermediaries and the cows. And so this is the world that the co-founders of GiveDirectly and I faced when, uh, when we were in grad school starting to learn about all this evidence and about the technology and the, the ability to kind of connect with people electronically through the new payment systems. Um, so we kind of looked at all of that, and we looked at this, and we said, you know, hopefully we'll soon have jobs. You know, fortunate that I was to land here at UCSD, and we'll be able to give away some money. And, you know, when we were thinking about where we wanted to give, we said, this doesn't look all that appealing. Um, and we would like the option of doing something that looks more like this, right? Which is what we built at GiveDirectly. The, uh, the story, so there's a co-founders and our first employee, Piali, 
Um, the, the, the story of this is, uh, in a way, it's kind of funny. So when I was in grad school, um, we were talking to some people about some of this payment technology and um, thinking about anti-fraud applications. You know, could we use this to cut corruption in programs like the ones in India you know, that I ended up working on? And it hits you at some point that this is great for anti-fraud, but it also would be a really exciting opportunity for you as a donor, kind of given what we now know about cash transfers. Um, but the interesting part is we then went from there to kind of a lot of the existing NGOs and said, you know, we'd like to be able to give this way. Um, is it something you guys have considered that you might offer that service to donors? And uh, it was really interesting, you know, because we met with a lot of people who had some cash transfer programming or had done some pilots that they thought were exciting. And, you know, you talk and you talk, and eventually you kind of realize, uh, either explicitly or between the lines, that um, it's a really threatening model, right, for the, ex for the establishment organizations. Because if you work in one of these organizations, and I'm very sympathetic. I mean, these are people who have probably taken huge pay cuts and have committed their lives, you know, in their careers to trying to help end poverty, right? So we shouldn't knock them or think of them as selfish. But, you know, fundamentally your job is to allocate capital on behalf of the poor, and the question this model raises is whether you're actually better at allocating it than the poor are themselves, or whether they might actually have a better sense of their circumstances and needs. Right? So it's a tough one, and I get that. We came to the conclusion that if this was going to happen, it was going to have to happen on its own as a new organization. Right? That It wasn't really in the interest of any of the existing guys to do this, because it's just going to cannibalize uh, what they currently do. Uh, so we created Give Directly back in uh, 2009 when I was finishing up in grad school. At first it was just friends and family, so it was a group of us, kind of a giving circle. We put in place the first impact evaluation, the first RCT, where we were going to do that randomization and figure out the impact of the money that we were giving. And then in uh, 2011 we got it to the point where we felt that operationally and in terms of the evidence base that we'd built, we were comfortable enough to open it up to the public. So we launched publicly in 2011, put out our website, and uh, so we're now at about three and a half years out um, we've grown GiveDirectly to around a bit over $20 million in annual revenue um, and 60 employees across Kenya and Uganda. And uh, been a, an incredibly, uh, really a rocket ship trajectory for a nonprofit. There are no Facebooks in the nonprofit world. There isn't explosive growth like that. But as these things go, that's a really fast trajectory. And um, I think more, more exciting than the money, too, to me, is really what the money represents, which is a lot of really great conversations that we've been having with people about some of these preconceived notions that we have and about the data and what they actually say. Uh, so it's been incredibly exciting. I wanted to walk you through kind of what exactly we do so you get a good sense of kind of what ex actually happens in the field. Um, and I get to wonk out a little bit because the design of programs like this is really kind of my passion, and both at GiveDirectly and through my research here at UCSD. Um, like, like most social protection programs or sort of social programs, there are the four basic steps, kind of figuring out who you want to give the resources to, um, auditing that list, then transferring the resources, in our case money, um, and then monitoring and dealing with problems as they come up. And the way we do these things, um, I think we take a unique, have a unique perspective on a lot of them. Um, but one common theme is uh, sort of the use of really the cutting-edge technology uh, to make these things as automatic and as transparent uh, as possible. So when it comes to targeting, what this means literally is that uh, teammates of ours are going door-to-door -door in East Africa. So we're in Kenya and Uganda right now in villages, capturing information on the people that could potentially be recipients of the program. Um, they're doing this electronically on Android devices that run sort of basic data collection tools, which mean we're capturing everything digitally from the point of origin. And we're also able to capture image data, which I'll show you in a sec how we use, um, and also timestamps and geostamps. That stuff may not sound super exciting, but it turns out it's super powerful to be able to timestamp 
and geostamp all the data that you collect. And just to give you an example of the kind of stuff that you can do, um, we had, it's kind of funny, but we had folks who, uh, who did some work on a Saturday once and then said, you know, we're going to go back on Monday to finish up because we weren't able to finish that village. And then they came back at the end of Monday and they uploaded all the data to the server. Uh, so you think, great, job well done. You look at the timestamps on the data and the timestamps all say Saturday. Right? So something doesn't quite match up. There are phone numbers, because we're getting phone numbers for the recipients who call those people up and they say, yeah, someone from GiveDirectly came to talk to us on Saturday. Right? So basically you have people who just you know, claim pay for a day of work on Monday that they hadn't actually done. Right? These little things like that, um, which can seem very granular, but in aggregate, these are the things that kind of drive the overall performance of programs. And without those data, right, without the electronic stamping, it's very difficult as a manager to catch these things and to hold people accountable. Um, so we're able to do stuff like that, which I think is great. Um, in determining who we want to send money to, we use a, a very simple criteria. Um, we use the material that people's homes are built out of. So I've shown you examples of two homes from Western Kenya. Um, the one on the right would be eligible. The one on the left uh, would not. And the key difference here is what the roof is made out of. So it turns out that in these communities, about 45% of people will typically have a roof that's made out of thatch. And about 55% will have one that's made out of metal, like the one on the left. And that turns out to be a really good predictor of who's poor and who's not. One thing I'd say is that poor is clearly all relative speaking, right? If you or I lived, if we were to move into that metal hut, metal roof hut tomorrow, we wouldn't be feeling great, right? So I think you could make a compelling argument that we should just give money to everybody in this community. And, and we've debated that and continue to debate it. Um, the second thing I'd say about poverty targeting is that there are a bunch of different ways of doing this and a lot of debate. Um, one thing that I think often gets missed is the importance of objectivity. So with infinite data on things like the number of cows a household has, whether they have a radio, all these sorts of things, um, you can get a very fine-grained prediction of how poor they are on your computer. And it looks great. You run your regression model, you say, this is awesome. You know, we're predicting poverty with 97% accuracy. Um, you end up with a formula that's incredibly complicated. And you send your team out into the field and say, find me people that look like this. And what happens is it's very difficult to establish accountability. And so you end up in situations, which very much the way many Indian states have ended up, where you have a poverty targeting rule that looks great on paper, and actually performs terribly in the field. You know, that if anything, wealthy people are more likely than poor people to get onto these benefits lists. Um, so I think one lesson we've learned from that is that sometimes you need to make uh, some sacrifices in terms of the statistical performance of the rule in order to get something that's easy to audit, that's very verifiable. Um, and this criteria turns out to be incredibly easy to audit for one interesting reason, which is um, once you've been to someone's house and collected that GPS pin, you can actually audit it from space. So these are all the GPS pins. And then I haven't zoomed in further, but as you zoom in further, you can actually see from the Google satellite imagery whether someone's roof is made out of thatch or whether it's made out of metal. Right? The metal roofs are shiny and the thatch roofs are dull and brown. So what we do is we take a 15-meter radius slice around each of these pins, and then we send that image data off to Mechanical Turk, which is a crowdsourcing website. And the people who work on Turk tell us for each of these images whether or not there's a thatch roof within that 15-meter radius. Right? So we can automate a lot of those things, and we can do it remotely. The third step in the process is uh, once someone's cleared all these audits to, uh, to transfer the money to them, and here is where we get to use some of this amazing mobile payments technology. Um, in Kenya, we're using M-Pesa, which is probably the best-known example of mobile money in the world. In Uganda, we use a platform called MTN, which is a, 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 an imitator of M-Pesa. And uh, to give you a sense of just how cool this technology is, you know, when we first started GiveDirectly, 
Um, this blew my mind. I was sitting on my living room floor in my apartment here in San Diego, you know, the kind of university-owned housing. And uh, you know, once a month I would sit on the floor and I would upload a spreadsheet with a list of Kenyan phone numbers and amounts. And you literally just upload this list into a website and hit send, and then people in remote parts of the African countryside get money. Kind of amazing that we live in a world where that's possible. The way it works literally is you have a, you have a phone, you're going to get a text message that says, Give Directly has just sent you, you know, 10,000 shillings. And then to collect that money, you're going to go to the nearest M-Pesa agent, who's typically going to be a shopkeeper in your village or maybe the nearest town, um, and they're going to cash you out. All right, so it's really that network of agents uh, plus the technology to inform you what's happening with your balance that's key. We, uh, we give recipients a SIM card, so not all of them have a cell phone when we show up. Um, at a minimum, they need a SIM card, because if you have a SIM card, you can go to the agent and plug it in and process the transaction. Um, we also give recipients the opportunity to purchase a phone from us, and we're able to charge them bulk rates, so it's a fairly attractive rate. Um, it's a bit of a logistical hassle for us to lug all those phones around the countryside. The reason that we do it, which uh, kind of takes us here to step four, is that we've been able to reach 99% of the recipients we've sent money to at least once by phone to follow up because so many of them do have access to a mobile phone. And that turns out to be really powerful because when you have a call center that's pushing out those calls, you're getting systematic feedback on all kinds of questions like did somebody ask you for a bribe? How long did it take you? How many minutes did it take round trip to walk and collect your payment? Are there things that we could do better? One set of questions that we started asking, which I love, um, are just basic comprehension questions. You know, help me understand, give directly. Like, what are the rules of this program that you're participating in? And the reason I love that is because when you have a dispersed workforce that's out, spread out throughout the countryside, communicating with all these people, um, it's hard to keep tabs on them and make sure that they're staying on message and that they're explaining things appropriately, even with the best of intentions, even if they're not actively trying to commit fraud. Um, a lot of times there's confusion and messages get diluted. So we've built a system now where through the call center, we're generating performance ratings for the field staff. Um, and some of the things that feed into that are things like how well do the recipients that you enrolled understand the program when we call them and talk to them and get their feedback. Um, so along with a lot of the other metrics we produce, that's part of what feeds into a scorecard like this one that's going to determine performance evaluation and compensation for the, for the field teams. Um, and I think closing those feedback loops, whether it's cash transfer programming or any other kind of programming, is just an incredibly bit of low-hanging fruit um, in development. Because so often you have program administrators and government officials sitting in the, in the capital city who have no idea of how pro programs are performing in the field and whether they should be praising um, or criticizing their teams. Um, call centers and mobile phones let us do that. So that's the process in a nutshell. I think the next big question is obviously, you know, what happens then? So we've successfully delivered money into a poor people's hands. Um, the uh, data that we get from the call center is uh, focused mainly on process stuff. You know, did you have problems collecting? Is there stuff that we could do better? We do ask people questions like, what did you do with the money? Um, and I take that with a grain of salt, and I would urge you to take data like that with a grain of salt whenever you see them. <laughs> Because the reality is, in places like this, people kind of know what aid workers like to hear. Um, and I think you tend to get a fairly, uh, a fairly sanitized version of reality when you ask questions this way. Um, but we ask it, so we have some sense from those data. Um, the data that I believe in more are uh, the data that come from the randomized evaluations. So I mentioned that we did one of these. Um, and we made a decision early on to conduct an experimental evaluation of our own work and to bring in a third party to do that. Um, it was an enormous study and a really exciting one. So we randomized these transfers across 1,500 households in western Kenya. 
Um, the guys who did the evaluation did a very detailed household survey that I think lasted something like five or six hours. So, I mean, really painful and excruciating detail about these guys, you know, everything from kind of how much fish did you eat last week um, to where your kids are in school, all these kinds of things. There's no way that I could summarize the full set of results for you, which ended up being something like a 150-page paper. Um, somewhat ironically, the UCSD econ department actually tried to hire the guy that wrote the paper, um, which was awkward for me. But uh, fortunately, Princeton came in and offered him like $2.5 million, um, which we could not compete with. So we lost out on, on Johannes. Um, but I think the kind of the numbers that I'd highlight from this study that you should, you should be aware of and think about is in terms of the average impacts, um, a pretty big increase in income. And the way I think about that is that the transfers we're giving people are about one year's income for them. So a 34% increase in income is like a 34% rate of return on the grant, just in terms of income. Um, big increases in assets, that's maybe not that surprising. Some of these assets are, are exactly the things that are increasing income. People are buying stuff that's productive. But interestingly, some of the assets are not revenue generating, they're cost reducing. I'll come back to this, but one thing that a lot of people did was to replace those thatched roofs that made them eligible with a metal roof. Um, and in fact, so many people were doing that that we started asking questions to try to figure out why that was such a popular, uh, popular investment. And it turns out there are a few things. I think one is just, you know, it's, it stinks to have a leaky roof and it's stressful and people don't sleep well. Um, but the predominant thing, the big thing is that if you have a thatch roof, you have to replace it every year, rethatch it and fix it. Um, and if you have a metal roof, it's going to last you 10, maybe 15 years if you're lucky. And if you run the math and say, how much does it cost to replace the thatch every year? Um, and then how much are you saving by purchasing the metal? Our ballpark is probably something like a 20, 25% annualized rate of return. So actually a great investment, right? Something we'd all love to have access to as investors here. Um, and the reason I love that example is because it's a great example of the sort of thing that I certainly had no sense of at all walking into these communities. That a smart thing to do with your money would be to buy a metal roof. Right? Uh, and I think it underscores this point that as an outsider, it's easy to miss stuff that may seem obvious, that may not seem glamorous, that might not look transformative, but that actually has a high rate of return. Uh, that's the assets. We see a big impact on malnutrition for kids. We have a lot of kids in this sample who are going uh, without eating at all for days on end, and we see some meaningful reductions there, um, especially among the poorer households in the sample. One that I didn't put up here, which is interesting, is we saw a really big reduction in uh, domestic violence. Um, this is a part of the world where uh, it's pretty brutal to be a woman. I think something like 40% of the women in the control group in this study reported having been physically abused in the last six months. Right? So a really tough place to be a female spouse, um, and we see big reductions in that. And I don't fully understand why that is. And one thing in particular that I don't fully understand is within this experiment, we did a micro-experiment where some of the people, some of the households we gave to the man and some of the households we gave to the woman. And you might have thought that it would be in the households where the money went to the woman where you'd be seeing these big impacts because she had more influence, more status, better bargaining position, whatever. Um, didn't seem to be the case. It seems like across the board, whether the money was going to the man or the woman, you see this reduction in domestic violence. Um, that could be a statistical fluke, right? When you look at enough numbers, you're going to see something weird just by chance. Um, but it could also be that the kind of the big driver here of domestic violence is really sort of conflict over economic hardship sort of arguing about which kid you're going to feed and which kid you're not, things like that. Um, speculation, but I think something that would, I would really love to better understand. The other one that was really unique about this study were the impacts on mental health. Uh, so there's been very little work done on the relationship between mental health, psychology, and poverty, but it's a burgeoning field of research now. It's a lot of interest. 
Um, and Johannes, who led this study, is kind of one of the guys at the forefront of that. So he measured impacts on a wide array of the standard metrics that we use for measuring things like depression um, and, uh, and mental well-being and saw this large uh, 0.2 standard deviation increase in those metrics on average. But the other thing that Johannes did, which I thought was fascinating, is he measured cortisol levels by taking saliva samples. And cortisol, of course, is uh, the body's primary stress hormone. So it's the best biomarker that we can easily get to get a sense of how stressed out you are. And it turns out that, at least for the larger transfers we gave, you see a significant reduction in stress levels. You could stop there and say, okay, that's great, being stressed sucks. Um, I know for me personally, my stress level, my cortisol level might be like the one metric that I would say if you wanted to measure how well Paul is doing on a given day, cortisol wouldn't be a bad one. Um, but I think the thing that's really fascinating about this is that Johannes has also done lab research in which he experimentally increased people's cortisol levels using some method that passes institutional review board techniques that I don't know about. Um, and then found that people whose cortisol levels were higher actually made more impatient decisions. When asked to make trade-offs between today and tomorrow, they were more likely to prioritize today and less likely to think ahead to the future. Right? So what's fascinating about this, and it's very preliminary, but you can start to now close these loops between having very little right now, um, being stressed, and therefore not planning ahead for the future as much as you might otherwise have done. And you can see the sort of the, the beginnings of a potential poverty trap or a cycle there, um, which I think is really, really fascinating stuff. More to be done there. The last thing is, and this is consistent with everything else we've seen, that there really were no impacts on people's uh, consumption of alcohol or tobacco. Whether you ask them about their own consumption or ask them about their spouse's consumption or ask them about their neighbor's consumption, um, you don't see any of those effects. And people do love to gossip about their neighbors. Right? People love to talk about the guy in their village that wasted the money on something stupid. Um, so it's not as if they don't like to talk about those things, but you just don't see treatment effects. Um, same for crime. So those are the data. Um, I think the tough part with a program like this is, you know, I want to give you the representative data um, because we want to talk about what the average impact is. And as a donor, you know, that's really what you should be thinking about is, you know, what's the expected effect or the impact going to be. Um, but I think that you know, we also want to understand the human side of this, and especially for a conversation like today's, where we want to think about this concept of freedom, right, and the idea of, uh, of being poor, sort of being, having very little freedom, very little opportunity. You also sort of want to capture the diversity, right, the range of things that people do with money, and the fact that, you know, part of the whole point of this is that given freedom, uh, the freedom to spend money as they want, people will do very different things, because they're all different. So I just wanted to pull a few examples to show you. Um, and there's an enormous variety that this will uh, not do justice to, but um, a fair number of people do buy livestock. So you think back to the cow and the sort of the wiggly line diagram at the beginning. Um, giving people livestock is not a crazy thing to do. Given the choice, a lot of people will choose it for themselves. Um, but it's about a third of the sample, right? It's not everybody. So the point is, that wasn't a crazy idea, but it might be a little bit crazy to think that everybody should get a cow because there are quite a few people in the sample that would prefer not to get one. Another one that I thought is interesting, so a fair number of people will invest in uh, motorcycles. So this is one of the better ways of getting around the countryside in, uh, in rural Kenya where the roads are quite bad. Um, and that could be good for you to get to your work or to get around. It could also be a profit-making thing where you take people around on the back of the motorcycle. So you'll see things like that. Um, I've mentioned the investment in housing. So a lot of people will put up a metal roof. Some people will completely rebuild houses from scratch. Um, we've had recipients whose homes have literally collapsed, you know, homes that were built out of mud and thatch so that they were 
um, homeless who have built new homes from scratch. People tend to be quite excited about that. One example of this that I thought was really compelling and kind of made me stop and think a little bit was, uh, was an elderly man who built uh, an extension to his house so that he could spend more time with his family. Um, and the thing I thought was provocative about that is when I as a donor think about who to give to, if I wanted to maximize you know, increased earnings, if I wanted to give to someone who's going to be able to invest and raise their standard of living, I wouldn't give to that elderly gentleman because reality is he's nearing the end of his life. Uh, making more money isn't a priority. Spending time with his family and his grandkids is. Right? And that to me seemed like a really provocative and a tough question and sort of really gets to the heart of this question of you know, to what extent do we really believe that freedom is constitutive of development? You know, and when we see someone using their freedom to make choices like that, do we judge that and say that that's not what we're seeking to accomplish? Or do we accept it and say that you know, that freedom is an important part of development and something that we want to support? I don't have an answer to that question, but I would encourage you to think about it. Uh, those are a few examples. Um, there are a lot more. So these are recipients from one of the smaller campaigns that we did um, back in uh, 2013. And you know, I think there's something like 75,000 folks now that we've, uh, we've reached through GiveDirectly. So, if you could just try to visualize, you know, try to get some sense of the kind of incredible array of things that people do um, when given the money, um, you know, I hope that that would give you some sense. The, uh, the song that we played right before we got started right, is the, uh, the last example that I wanted to give you. There's a story behind that song that we were playing before Steve and Alan came up. Um, this is, I think, probably the craziest use of money that I'm aware of to date. Um, one of the guys we gave money to, and I should emphasize as a researcher, this is not representative. Um, this is highly atypical. Uh, but one guy used the money to buy instruments and start a band, which is the thing that he had wanted to do. And uh, at that point, a bunch of crazy stuff happened. So one thing, they released an album that had this song about Give Directly, which we now adopted and kind of made our theme song. So that was the song that I was playing as, uh, as, we, as we kicked off. Um, his wife divorced him, so they started playing a lot of these gigs at nightclubs. Um, and she broke up with him because of that. He said that was a good thing. I don't know. <laughs> Um, some bees started nesting in his speakers and because of that he got into beekeeping and he's making money selling honey now it just I realize as I say this I'm ruining my credibility with you um, but, but this all happened it's atypical right but the other thing I'd say about that is keep in mind that when you see nonprofits marketed using stories right what you're doing there is kind of picking the most interesting or the most compelling right so if I were to tell you, you know, here are the impacts of cash transfers and I'm going to explain it with stories, you'd think that everybody's going to start a band or buy a motorcycle. And of course, that's not true, right? So I think you have to have the balance of the stories to get some sense of the kind of diversity and the human richness of it, but also the data to keep you grounded and say kind of what's true on average at the end of the day. Um, so that's, I think, kind of where we're at. The last thing I wanted to leave you with and then hopefully move to some discussion and some questions was uh, just a sense of what we want to do next. Um, and there's a lot on the plate that I'm excited about. But um, you know, thinking about this human diversity and how we can bring it a bit closer to home, one of the things that we're working on for 2015, and I make no commitments, is getting that onto your phone. So we put a lot of work during 2014 in upgrading the uh, systems that we use in the field so that all of the data, and the data I mean sort of the numbers, but also people's stories, their pictures, their description of the challenges that they're facing in life and what they want to accomplish with their transfers, just getting all of that data queryable. And if you go to our website today, you'll see some of it getting piped through. We have some of our sort of performance indicators that we pipe through in real time. Um, so I, I'm psyched about that. You can see, literally see, at the same time as I do as a manager, you can see how we're performing in the field, whether it's good or bad, and tell us if we're doing a bad job. 
Um, but I think there's this human element of the data that we really want to bring through. So you know, the long-term vision is that you'd be able to send money directly to someone in Africa and then see what happens on your phone. And striking the right trade-offs between privacy and anonymity and this kind of feedback. Um, but give you a really unfiltered and uncensored view, both of how we're performing, the kind of basic, you know, imagine like the FedEx package tracking app, right? You know, I'd like you to be able to have that for your money, and you can see each of the balls light up as the money makes its way from you over to there. Uh, but then also what happens as a result, you know, what the recipient says is going on in their lives, and get that really unfiltered view. And the reason I think it's so exciting is because, you know, in the same way that we've been able to disintermediate the giving part, right, I think we have a real opportunity to disintermediate um, the perceptions part and the communication and the way poverty, frankly, gets marketed to us in the U.S., right? I think we tend to get a very spun and sanitized view of what poverty is and what poor people's lives are like. Um, and so the idea to me of cutting all of that intermediation out and having a completely unfiltered view with both the good and the bad, you know, people for whom things panned out and people for whom things didn't work, you know, they invested in a business that collapsed, but being able to see all that reality and that diversity in real time um, I think is incredibly exciting, and it's totally feasible from a technological standpoint. So that's what we're working on. Um, I think, you know, sort of broad takeaways, there's this incredible diversity that's, that's just staggering. There are the mean impacts, which are great. Um, but I would just think a lot about the richness and the diversity and ask that question. Um, you know, I think that when you look just at the average impacts and recognize that, you know, some people are going to make choices that don't pan out, that's the reality. All of us do that. Um, but that on average, the choices people are making are leading to significant improvements, and that there are some of these individual choices, these special choices that are just brilliant. You know, I think that there's a compelling case. But I also think personally that, um, for me at least, there is intrinsic value in people having been able to make those choices in the first place. Thanks. Thank you.